as the Apostle Paul says, slaves of sin unto death or slaves of obedience unto righteousness. Lord Christ, would you speak to us and confirm your word in our hearts. Give us receptive hearts and ears this day. Father, in your Son's great name we pray. Amen. This passage comes in front of me, and all of a sudden, Bob Dylan's song, Serve Somebody, starts playing. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan understands this passage very well. For Paul, we can't not make a choice. And Paul writes this amazing paragraph urging us to make the right choice, not to live under the dominion of law and sin and death, but to live under the dominion of grace and peace and love. And what I like to do is make observations about Paul's sense of what grace means for us. So I have three observations. First, grace has one rule. You are free. Second, grace has one school, the church. And third, grace has one goal, your sanctification, or getting a bit of heaven into you now. First, grace has one rule. Paul asks, well, should we sin now that we're not under law but under grace? And he answers, may it never be. Paul has been exulting in the fact that we are now justified by God's grace. As the hymn says, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Because of the blood, I don't have to prove myself anymore. I've been accepted, rotten as I am to the core, but declared loved, declared free. Up to then, every relationship I ever had was about proving that I even ought to exist and that I was worth something. Finally, God says, because of my son, you are worth everything. And at that point, I can give up using you to make me feel good about me. I can stop sinning against you by using you for me. Whether it's the guy who takes the girlfriend who's going to just make him look good, or whether it's me calling you only when I need you, I, in Christ, can give up having to assert my rights and meeting my needs through you, and now I can live to benefit you. That is the freedom that grace gives. 
That's a bit of what Jesus has in mind when he says, you can be ready to give a cup of cold water to one of the least of mine. It's not a matter of calculation. It's just a matter of responding in the moment. It's what he has in mind in Matthew 25 when he talks about visiting him in jail, taking care of him when he's sick, feeding him and clothing him. That is the way of grace, the freedom to live for somebody else and not myself, the freedom not to sin. Now, when I leave this place today, I'm going to put on a mask. Now, Mayor Demings has told me I need to put on a mask, but that's not why I'm going to put it on. I'm going to put it on because Dr. Fauci says it's a way of preventing whatever disease might be in me that I might not even be aware of from harming you. And because I want to care for you as my neighbor, I'm going to wear the mask. We are simply now free to fulfill the vows we make in our baptism as ones justified by Christ to seek and serve Christ in every person we meet, loving our neighbor as ourselves. So in the first place, grace has one rule. You're free not to sin. Second, grace has one school, the church. Having been in submission to a sensei for a number of years to learn a martial art of using a razor-sharp steel katana to cut targets. It's scary to watch YouTube videos of backyard samurai who've just picked up the sword and kind of figured it out for themselves. What, what they do is dangerous in the first place. And secondly, they carry none of the, the grace and the sense of, of uh, rounded motion in space, the, a sense of attitude and manner that indicates they've come under submission to a whole way of life. The Christian life is a lot like that. We are not here to go freeform and make up stuff for ourselves. That's why Paul gives thanks to God for the fact that his readers in Rome have given themselves over to the form of teaching that they have been given over to. There is a way of life that one learns only in submission, in submission to the scriptures, and then in submission to the way that the church has codified and summed up the scriptures in the creeds, and then embodied them in the way that we worship. This is why we need one another. It's why we need to worship even when it's online, even when there's always the temptation to click away and go somewhere else, this is the chance for us to be formed into people who are 
not backyard samurai liable to do more harm than good and certainly not looking like our Lord and Master. For Paul, it's not up to each one of us to get out there and figure out how to live in the world as it is on our own, to deal with the larger questions that we're all having to deal with, global pandemic or our society's reckoning with race, or whether it's the things that are more up close and personal, whether it's a relationship that's not working, or health that's failing, or an income that's vanishing. We need, we need, the, we need God's larger story to shape us and to form us, and we need one another to hold us to account. That's why the first appointment every day needs to be getting into God's Word to understand it and to come into submission to it and to show up, whether it's online or, Lord willing, when we're able to do this in person, and then to wrestle together over what these texts mean for us so that we are not backyard samurai, but followers of the form of teaching to which we have been entrusted. Third, grace has one goal. Your sanctification, your being, your having a bit of heaven put into you now. Paul urges his readers towards the end of this paragraph to present their members as Slaves of righteousness unto sanctification. That's the way the older translations render it. A, an enslavement to righteousness that leads to sanctification. What Paul's premise is that our life follows one arc or another. An arc of death. An arc of lawlessness of being dragged around by our passions that one day will lead to it being revealed on the other side of death that we have already been in death the whole time. The alternative is an arc that where we grow towards the glorious splendor of the character of our Savior and that will eventuate one day in it being revealed that in a sense we have already been living in the heaven that we're waking up in. C.S. Lewis writes a marvelous parable about this dynamic, the great divorce. He imagines, and it's only in his imagination, a bus ride from hell to heaven. The people who get on the bus can choose to stay in heaven if they like the place. The problem is most don't like it. They find the solidity of their being in heaven or the solidity of everything in heaven and the, 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 the nonstop joyful companionship to just be too much. They're so used to the shade of their existence in hell and the and the, and the narcissistic loneliness that they have in hell, that they just choose to get back on the bus to go back home. 
Lewis's point is, every one of our lives is already conditioned by the hell. That selfishness and that being led around by supposed freedoms, but are not, has already got us into. And one day, we'll wake up and find that we're in the hell that our whole life has been preparing us for. Or, one day, we will wake up and we will be surrounded by, by solid glories and by and by perpetual relationship and joyful companionship that is an extension of the life that we have been living in the now. That, friends, is what Paul wants for you and me. In my early years in the pastorate, living in South Florida, Sherry and I were visited by the 82-year-old wife of a, of a former star for the New York Yankees. She came to our church and she heard this good news of grace that is free, of blood that was shed so that we don't have to justify ourselves anymore and so that we can live as though raised from the dead in anticipation of the fact that one day we will literally be raised from the dead. And at our kitchen table after church, she just started crying. She said, that is such wonderful, wonderful, wonderful news. But at 82 years of age, I, it's just passed me by. It's too late for me. And all I could think to say in the moment was, it doesn't matter if you're 22 or 82, it's never too late to accept that God's grace through Jesus is for you and that eternal life can start right now. That may be something that's already happened in you, and if so, let this passage be a wonderful chance to renew and refresh your sense of what it is to know a grace that sets you free, no longer to be dragged around by sin, but to live your life loving others and loving Christ in others. Let this be the opportunity to give yourself more and more to the school of Jesus Christ, his church, so that you might be more and more formed into the fellowship of the free, no longer a backyard samurai, but a mighty warrior in God's great army. And may this be, may this be an occasion in which you accept with joy his journey for you towards a heaven that will come, but has already begun in the eternal life that is yours now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, to him be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church, now and forever. Amen.